Revelation chapter 11. And let me tell you about Revelation chapter 11, okay? You're going to help me out a little bit tonight. Uh, I have gone way too long at this church. It has been almost six months since I've had anybody do any small group work. And so, I know how much you all love it. So we're going to do some in a little bit. but Because there's, some re- there's a reason behind it. There's a method to the madness, okay? Here's the thing. Chapter 11 is one of the most complicated chapters in Revelation. Which is saying a lot. Because there are lots of complicated chapters. It's one of the hardest to understand. Just to give you an idea, in the first verse, there is a description of a temple, an altar, and worshipers. I read one commentary today that had six ideas what the temple was, five ideas what the altar was, four ideas who the worshipers were. Took up about 10 to 15 pages on one verse. Okay? It's a complicated thing. I'm going to give you a very simple outline because one of the things that I seem to do is I simplify the complicated and complicate the simple. All right? So this is complicated, so we're going to simplify. But I want you using some, uh, you know, most of you have been in this study of Revelation for a few weeks or you've been in and out or some of you have been here almost every week. And so as we've kind of talked through what it means... I'm going to give you the opportunity to kind of work through some of those kind of ideas uh, on your own, okay? And so we're going to do that in just a minute. Uh, Let me tell you what's difficult about this and why I think it's important. This is one of those chapters that no matter... I read commentaries that had all kinds of opinions about what the specific things inside this chapter mean. But they all kind of came to the same conclusion about what the whole chapter means or this part of the chapter means. And so tonight, more than anything, I want to make sure that we don't miss the main idea worrying about the details. Okay? And I'm going to give you that main idea in a minute. We're not good at that always. Uh, Most of you know my son Eli. have seen him, wave to him, understand how ruggedly handsome he is. Especially because he looks like his dad. But Eli is me, okay? I mean, Eli, personality-wise, he's just me. There are things that I see in him is just like me. Um, just a funny story, and then I'll get to the point of telling you this. Uh, yesterday morning, he got up for school. I had to get Eli up for early for school, and he lay, I had clothes. You know, Eli, we still lay his clothes out. Get, he gets up. We're fixing him lunch. We're doing all that kind of stuff. And we get ready to walk out the door, and I notice that he's got on the on the right side of his hair, he's got a tuft of hair that is escaping, moving upward. All right, and so I do what any good dad would do. I spit on it and layered it down, all right, as much as I could, you know. And my spit apparently wasn't very good that early in the morning, so I had to get the squirt bottle. All right, so I get Eli, and I said, "There, you know, I'm frustrated because." Can't get out the door. It's just, you know we, we always got something. Going. Can't get out. We gotta go. We gotta go. We're gonna be late. And I looked in the mirror, and Dad, blame it. If I don't have the same <laughs> tuft of hair, exact same spot coming up. No, he didn't spit on mine. I don't trust them yet to do that. They don't have good aim. But Eli, one of the things we, str- you know, sometimes working with him at homework, I realize things I struggle with, he struggles with. One of those is finding the main idea of a paragraph. 
Y'all remember that in school? You'd have a, you have to underline the main idea. You know, lots of things have changed in the educational climate of today, but they still have to underline the main idea. And Eli struggled with that because he likes all the details. He's a Lego guy. He likes getting in on the details and really getting in the midst of that. He doesn't care about the overall picture sometimes. Well, for me, one of the tendencies I have, even in studying Scripture, is to get so locked in in all the details that we miss the big picture. We've talked about this in Revelation. One of the disservices that happens with the book of Revelation is people get so fired up about what each individual thing is and they miss the entire message. So here's the message of the first part of Revelation 11. All right, You're going to have your paper filled out again at the beginning. Here it is. God will protect His people and they will proclaim... His gospel until He comes again. That's it. God will protect His people and they will proclaim His gospel until He comes again. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put some words and questions up on the board. Okay? And while I'm doing that, everybody get seated. Now I'm going to ask you to move around. Alright? I want you to get in groups of three or four and you're going to discuss in your groups some of the details of this chapter, okay, and what you think they mean. I want you to use your interpretive skills over what we've talked about over the last few weeks. I want you to use the thing I just told you, what the main point of this, well, how does it fit into that? Where does that come from? So I want you to go ahead and move, while you're moving and getting in your groups, I'll write the stuff on the board. Alright, these are the three things I want you all to kind of think through. You're going to have about ten minutes to think through it. Because I want you to know more than just to answer the question and go, well, that's Herod, Jerusalem, now, yes. You know, just, that's not necessarily the answer, I'm just giving you. So, so it's the temple, and it's the question is, which one, where, when, and physical question mark. 42 months, 1260 days. Is that literally 42 months, 1260 days? What does it mean if it is or if it's not? Okay? And then the two witnesses. Who are they? When? Where? Okay? So, y'all read Revelation 11. Don't just come up with the answers. Read Revelation 11. Look at what I gave you as an outline and think through what you think. And then I'll give you... We'll walk through different things. Alright? As we come back together, I'll show you that these are my notes for tonight so y'all are basically teaching. Alright? So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the temple because... Here's what I want to do. Okay? Here's the game plan for the rest of our time together. We're going to spend about three minutes and we'll be done. I'm just kidding. We're going to, it'll be much longer than that. We're going to talk about the answers to these questions... Talk about what it meant to the people then and then what it means to us. Okay? I'm going to give you a clue. I've already given you the ending. And it's that God protects His people and they will proclaim His gospel until He comes again. Okay? So that's where we're headed. So we've got to get there by navigating this most... Don't you love how I told you this is the most misunderstood and difficult chapter in Revelation? Y'all go have fun with it? Then you like that? So let's talk about temple, Okay? So, which one? Which temple? Where is it? When? Is it a physical place? Y'all tell me what you think. 
Yes. <laughs> yes could answer one of those four. What the last question was is a physical place. Okay, it's a physical place. Where? When? Which one? The original site. Okay, where it was destroyed. All right. All right. So that's one understanding. Anybody else have different answers to those questions? Yeah, but that's obviously yeah. you, okay, you had, so tell me, uh, you're not necessarily wrong. I can tell you right now that that was in a commentary I read, and I don't know your full answers, but y'all may be on a place that commentary I read said. So go. You said it was heaven? Yeah. What we have, man? Heaven. <laughs> <laughs> it's the heaven one? It's in heaven? We in heaven, and it's physically in heaven. Alright? <laughs> Before it's coming down. It's the temple of God. Yes. The, okay. The spiritual temple of God. Okay. So, anybody else got an idea? Let me tell you, there are three main ideas. There are actually, you can look about 20. Okay? But I'm going to give you the three themes that run throughout. First is, there are those that say this is uh, the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. In the future. Why does it have to be in the future? Because it's not there now. What's there now? There's a mosque. There's a mosque, right? Right on the temple site. So there are those that say that before the end of the world comes, during tribulation or before tribulation, or at some time, that Israel is going to rebuild the temple. It's going to be on the original site of the temple. And that that is what is being discussed here when he says, go measure the temple. Go measure it out, alright? So, there are those that say, yes, it's a physical temple built in Jerusalem in the future. Okay? There are those that say it is Herod's temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed around 70 AD. Okay? So, in the past, that it was a physical temple and it was there. Um, we'll talk about in a minute how that might impact the, well we'll just go ahead and talk about it now the reason that it might impact the people of that day with that is because um, Herod's temple the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus was alive was destroyed in 70 AD Revelation's written in 90 so say well why does it matter well there would have been those people from Jewish descent who had become Christians that the temple is where they interacted with God even after becoming Christians Christians still went to the temple some of them, Jewish uh, Christians particularly. And there may, the, the point of measuring the temple is God is basically saying, go out and measure it because I already know what is mine. Okay? The measuring in their day and time, the, the spreading it out and saying, what, go and measure it, the rods, is saying, I'm declaring this as mine. I know what is there. Okay? That, that's one of those concepts that we don't... I don't say, hey, I need to know what's mine. Just go measure it. Unless you're getting a surveyor out. Okay? But what God's almost saying is, John, be a surveyor of my people. Okay? And so to the people in his day, even though the temple has been destroyed, God still knows who his people are. Okay? But now, there's no place there in the Bible where Herod's temple measurements are ever given, are they? Uh... Charlie, you ask a question I do not know the answer to. Wow. Man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, but, but the thing is, it doesn't, at the end I want to tell you, it doesn't necessarily, it matters. Somebody said, is anybody right or wrong? Yes. We don't know. I may not know who's right or wrong. 
But somebody's right, somebody's wrong in this. It can't be all of these. But the point is the same if it's all, no matter which one it is. Here's the third. That it is the spiritual temple. Okay? A spiritual temple takes out the where and the when uh, and the which one. Okay? Here's the thinking behind that one. Um, the temple itself, while it was a building, the concept behind the temple is never fully just about a building. The temple was simply the place where man and God met. Okay? Now, the temple took many forms in Scripture before it took on the form of the temple. The Garden of Eden was a temple. It was a place where God and man met together. Um, you remember throughout the, the um, Genesis fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where they have an especially ex- extreme experience with God, what did they do? They built an altar, and it almost always had the word, the letters E L at the end. Anybody know why? Because those were the name. That's the name of God, and so Beth El is the house of God or the place of God. Okay, and so they would build it and say, basically, this is where I met God. Israel. What does that mean? One who wrestles with God. Okay, and so that's what the temple concept was. When Moses takes the people out of Egypt, he goes up on Mount Sinai, he gets the Ten Commandments, he meets with God, Mount Sinai becomes a temple to him. He comes down, what does God instruct him to do for the people? To build, not a temple, a tabernacle. They have the Ark of the Covenant, they build a tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? It's a portable Temple, right? Is the place where God and man meet. Okay? So they get through the promised land, they get into the promised land, they settle. David wants to build a permanent place. He's unable to because God won't allow him to. So Solomon builds a temple. And it is extravagant. Now, not quite as extravagant as Solomon's house, but it's extravagant. And he builds this temple unto God. And the temple serves as the place where man and God meet through sacrifices and ritual and worship. When does that stop? Why does it stop? Because God comes to live. Yeah. When Christ comes, He is God and man meeting together. He is, again, a portable temple. A place of man and God interacting together, bringing the truth of God to man. When Christ dies, the veil is split. There's no need for the temple anymore, right? Because Hebrews says, once and for all, Christ made sacrifice and atonement for all. So where does the temple then move? Within us, right? Do we have a scripture that tells us that? What does it say? You are the temple, right? This is where I've argued for years we need a southern translation of the Bible. Because that verse has been misused. That does not mean your body is a temple, so that means go out and look like a bodybuilder so you can show everybody how good the temple looks. Alright? What it says there is, that word is plural. And a southern translation would translate it, y'all are the temple of God. Right? 
because in the English language, we, you means you or you, all right? I mean, I'd be okay with the Northern translation, you guys. I mean, you could do that. <laughs> or the temple of God, right? But, but the point, the point is, you know, you, the point is the temple of God becomes the people of God. We, as the church body, are the intersection between God and man today. Right? We are the physical presence of God on the earth. We are the temple. Okay? And so the spiritual understanding of this says that when God says measure the temple, He's not saying to John, go measure a physical temple. Yeah, tangible temple. What He's saying is, I know who mine are, and I'm going to protect them. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't matter from a theological standpoint which of these is definitely understood. Because the point is, God knows who His people are, and He's not going to let anything happen to them. Now, we'll talk about that in a minute, what that means. It's a protection element. Alright? Now, it matters what people think geopolitically. You know there's an arm of Israeli government that is constantly making checks on whether or not some evangelical that thinks this is what has to happen before the Christ comes back isn't going to go bomb the Dome of the Rock and start... Armageddon on their own, so they can build the temple there. Now I'm not saying that may be. That may, I'm not saying that that's definitely wrong, okay? Or that's definitely right. My understanding, my best interpretation, is number three. Okay. That's where I am. That doesn't mean I'm completely right. Well, it probably does, though, right? I mean, I mean, we're you and I are in agreement. It probably means we're we're right. I think we got it. Okay, good. Uh, but that doesn't mean... You get my point that, that this is important. But the, the lesson that comes out of that is more important. That whether you believe it is a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem in the future... And listen, if they rebuild a temple in Jerusalem in the future and that's where all this goes down, I'm not going to go, man, I was wrong. <laughs> I'm going to say, praise be to God. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? If it happens like Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye say and left behind... Praise be to God. If it doesn't, praise be to God. If it happens, not if, when it happens, we're going to give glory and honor to Him. Alright? So if it was Herod's temple for these people to feel comfort, then it gives us the same comfort. God knows who we are. Right? If it's the spiritual temple, God knows who we are. It means He will protect us. Now this is not what that protection means. We've talked about this. It doesn't mean that your bank account is never going to suffer. It doesn't mean that you're going to be completely healthy. Have any of you here been sick at all since the day you accepted Christ? Anybody had any physical illness? Yeah, we all have, right? It doesn't mean we're not going to be we're going to be completely healthy and wealthy and wise. What it means is that in the end, God is going to protect His people eternally. It doesn't even mean that He's going to protect us on this earth from being harmed or killed. There is a joint resolution of Congress 
you know how difficult it is to get a joint resolution, bipartisan resolution? There's one right, there's a bipartisan resolution right now because there's a pastor in Iran that is about to be killed because of his faith. And God's word doesn't promise, you follow me, you won't be killed. What it promises is, even if you're killed, you won't be dead. You're going to live forever with me. I read a story this week of a guy in the 1800s who was getting ready to go on a mission trip. Or mission, not, you didn't do mission trips in the 1800s. You, you didn't have a week in Brazil and come home. You had a life in Brazil. All right. Uh, he was getting ready to go on a, a, a trip to a, a, a tribe that had not yet been reached with the gospel. And this elderly, very ill man came up to him in the congregation after he announced it and said, why in the world are you going? He said, well, why shouldn't I? He said, one word for you. Cannibals. Do you really want to die at the hands of a cannibal and be eaten? (laughs) And the young man looked at him and said, sir, I appreciate your life and all that you've done, but the truth is, you know your days are numbered here. And at some point, they're going to put you in the ground and you're going to be eaten by worms. And so to me, it seems like my decision for me is whether or not I'm going to serve the Lord and might be eaten by cannibals or I'm going to stay here and ride and be eaten by worms. Either way, my body ends up the same. And either way, both of us are going to be claimed by Christ in the end and made healthy. And so the point of that is, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be hunky-dory, great all the time. He's going to protect us in that way. But it means even if your life is taken from you, and the, fall, and the ceiling falls on your head. <laughs> Even if that happens, you're going to be okay. Now, think about this. You are a church member in Laodicea or Ephesus or Philadelphia. And your best friend just got arrested and is in jail. And they only didn't get you because you hid in the corner when they came. And you know that this morning you might walk out of your house and if your face is seen, within the week you could be dead. And you receive a letter from Paul that basically says, God knows you're His. And He's going to take care of you. It doesn't matter what you do or what happens to you, He's going to take care of you. Now that's a drastic thought, but all of us in this room deal with situations on a regular basis. Bills that come unexpectedly, diagnosis that come, family situations, difficulties that rise. And to know in the midst of that, God has measured off His people. He knows who we are. We don't ever have to doubt that. Alright? 42 months, 120, 1260 days. Tell me what you think. Okay. Wayne has hit the jackpot on the spiritual and is going again. All right, for Wayne says no. We're just going to put him with Dr. Wayne. All right. I think I've heard him teach this before. It's not. Okay. What did you say? He cheats. He cheats. I think it is literal. You think it is? So, we got a Yates throwdown going on back there. All right. So, it's either yes or no or somewhere in between. How long is. 42 months. Right. How long is 1260 days? Huh? Let's see. Let's take 1260 days divided by 30. 4 
120. Some of y'all need a little revision review. 42, 42, 42, 42 months. Three and a half years. Both of them are three and a half years. All right? For those quick math majors out there. A lot of people think, it, it, this won't make a difference on these answers, but a lot of people think, well, why did he say 42 months and 1260 days in another place? Did you ever write a paper in school and they told you not to use the same word over and over again? So you had to come up with new words to you. Keep so it Roger became your friend. Mr. Roger Thesaurus became your friend and you look for new words, okay? So some of that's just this. Some of it's just to bring variety, okay? The two basic understandings are, yes, it is three and a half years. It is a hundred, I mean, 42 months, 1260 days. It is that exactly. From the moment it starts, the three and a half years of tribulation, this is what happens in three and a half years to the day it ends. Okay? There are others that say this hearkening back to Daniel, where Daniel talks a lot about weeks and days and you know, times times seven times seven and the weeks and the months and all that, that what this is is an indeterminate symbolic period of time in which it will get worse and worse and worse, and that it is not definitely this. It could be shorter, it could be a little longer, or it could be much longer. Okay? Those that take it symbolically most of the time say that it's much longer than that. That this 1260 days, these 42 months, is the time of tribulation from the moment Jesus ascended unto the Father until the very last days. Okay? There are others that say, no, 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 that's not what it means. It means... 42 months. Here's the point. The big point. Regardless, it's under the control of God and God determines when it will happen. What we can't do and what is never suggested to be done in Revelation is for us to say, well, we are currently in month 3. Or 12. Which means... In, I'm just using hypothetical, those numbers aren't going to line up. In August of 2016, or 14, it's when it's all coming to end. Because I've got to figure it figured out. Or December 21st, 2012. Alright? That's the Mayans, that's not this. So, the point is, there's an amount of time that God is going to allow. Okay? So, Yes or no? It's a good question. Two witnesses. Okay? Is that who they are? Or is that who they represent? Or do you think that's who they are? Well, it could be. They're modeling. They're modeling. They got good clothes on. Sackcloths. Where do we get their sackcloths? There you go. It's coming back around. It's been gone for two thousand years. It's coming back. Some sackcloth and ashes. Everybody, hurry up! Um, When the great economic collapse happens on month fourteen, go get some sackcloth. Um, Why do we? Why do we say Moses and Elijah? What makes us say that? What's that? Transfiguration. What in this passage gets us to say that? There's a reason that everybody agrees it's Moses and Elijah. 
How does it describe them? We'll get to that in a minute. What are they able to do? They were prophesying. And bring plagues. They can bring plagues. One can shut up the heavens so that rain will not come. Who was the prophet that shut up the heavens so rain would not come? Elijah. One can turn the water into blood and send plagues. Who was that? Moses. All right. Like a staff. Yeah. So you got Moses and Elijah at least represented. Okay. Why two? Okay. Yeah. Legally, you had to have two witnesses to confirm in the Old Testament. Okay. So this is understood as a true and right declaration, legally, justly, it is truth being proclaimed. Okay? So, if you take the temple to be literal, then you probably take these two guys to be literally two guys standing out there. Right? So what if you take the temple to be spiritual? Who are these two guys? Believers. Believers, as in, what do you mean by that? Like, you mean like two believers? You mean like all believers? Right. If you take the, if you take the temple being a spiritual body of Christ, then what you take is that the two witnesses are the body of Christ proclaiming the message of Christ. Okay. Which the only major objection is that's three and a half days. We'll get there in a minute. Okay. So if you're the church, let's think about being the church. You're that person in Philadelphia, or you're person in Smyrna, or you're the person in Ephesus. You realize God knows who you are, and what do the two witnesses tell you to keep doing? Proclaiming the gospel, right? It doesn't matter if it gets you killed, what do you do? You proclaim the gospel, right? So what, why three and a half days? It's half of seven. Two months, half yeah. the tribulation of the half, so you, you, half, of, half of the perfect number. perfect number seven. Okay. Here's here's what the spiritual kind of the spiritual idea of that is. They they say because if you take it literally, it's pretty self-explanatory, right? It's three and a half days. They're laid in the middle of the street. It's pretty pretty self-explanatory. The spiritual side of it, what they say is that the three and a half days just want you to realize that it is small in comparison to the three and a half years. Right? Three and a half years compared to three and a half days is a small time frame. And what they take is, if you take as a representative that these two witnesses, these perfect witnesses these from the Old Testament idea, these witnesses are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ until He comes, that at some point towards the end, the world is going to think it has destroyed the church. That has done away with it, and that the witness of Christ is dead and buried and gone. Can you imagine the party the world would have if we quit telling them how bad they are? Now that's not all we do, but... The, the, the force of good, God kind of says, alright, I'm out. And that's what this whole dancing in the streets or having a good time, they're partying. But God says it's for a short time. And just when they think it's over, back comes the people of God. An earthquake is sent, shatters what they know, and we return triumphant. 
as the followers and the believers of Christ. I have a question. Why is it that that some people, not saying you, but some people <laughs> take these things, uh, you know, as as not being literal when when everything else that we read, like the Old Testament, yeah. and everything that God did in the Old Testament, you know, like uh, Jonah and the, uh, you know all the plagues and everything that Moses did and all the prophets did. That was literal, so we believe that as literal. Yeah. So why do we not believe that this is actually literal? I actually have an answer for your question. Oh. I didn't have an answer for your husband's, okay. but I got one for you. <laughs> not taking something literally does not mean that it's not true. Okay, first of all. So, to say that it's not literal does not equal that it's not true. Okay? Revelation is a completely different kind of literature than the Old Testament. It's like, in some ways, now, this is where you always have to be careful trying to make this connection. It's like reading a non-fiction account of the Civil War and reading the new book that's out called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. You know what I mean by that? I mean, it's like reading... Who was the guy... Do you all know the guy that wrote the three-volume account of the Civil War? Uh, Shelby Foote? Okay, I'm getting blank stares. <laughs> Shelby Foote wrote a three... Uh, Civil War is 150 years ago. I think, it's, I think it's Shelby Foote. I ordered the first volume because somebody said, man, this is great, you need to read this. first volume is like 800 pages. Uh, remember I showed that to you? That's volume one, and they get longer from there. But it's almost a day-by-day account of the Civil War. Well, the Old Testament is a lot of history or prophets. Now, you have parts in the prophets that are what they call apocalyptic literature that we don't take literally. Like Ezekiel, when he has the vision of the wheel within a wheel and the animals flying around. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that where he was sitting, there were actual wheels within a wheel. It was a dream, it was a vision, and we interpret what the symbolism of that is. Okay? Revelation is a completely different thing. Nobody takes the book of Revelation literally 100%. Yeah, I do. Truthfully, <laughs> hey, I take it, truthfully, I take it 100%. But you don't, you don't think the gnats are going to, I mean, the, the, uh, the locusts are going to be actually what they look like. You know, I mean... Even people and people will say, "Well, I take it literally," but I think the locusts are Apache helicopters. Well, that's not taking it literally. That's that's symbolically. And so it's Revelation. It's not whether you take it symbolically or literally. It's what do you take symbolically and what do you take literally. Here's the reason I fall back more and more on a symbolic understanding. For, for instance, with the temple, for one reason. Okay. What's the use in rebuilding the temple today? Why would they rebuild the temple? For sacrifice. Why do we need sacrifices? Well, we don't, but these are... So why would, why would God use a place in the end times that's reconstituted the sacrifice that he did away with when Jesus died once and for all, as the book of Hebrews says? No, that's true. God wouldn't. God's not doing but I know, but I'm saying, but he uses it in here. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's one, one issue with the temple. It was a visual sign of his existence. But it, that, we are that now. Well, I know that has been transferred to, to Christians. It is yes. Well, and right, but we're dealing with Christians here. He's writing to Christians here. 
He's writing to people that have moved on from that. Here's the other thing. I go back. It is so easy for us. And y'all can tell by the way I teach this. I don't teach it this way. It's so easy for us to try to predict what this book means that we miss what it means. And to those people that picked it up the first time, I don't think they were trying to figure out about a temple and a future site. They were figuring out, this means God takes care of us now. And the most important thing for us in the midst of this is not... Listen, I I believe it will be... We're not going to miss it when the end of the world comes. None of us are going to go, man, I have missed that. When did that happen? You're not going to wake up on a Sunday morning and go, well, and go. Well, even if let's just say, even if the rapture happens, let's even if the rapture happens and you're left behind, you're not going to go. Well, wonder what that was all about. You're going to know when this happens. So it's there's no sense in us trying to figure it out beforehand. So my question is, what does this do for me today? And for me today, dealing with all kinds of junk, what I know is that because, whether it's a physical temple rebuilt in Jerusalem or the spiritual temple of God, God knows who His people are and He's going to take care of us. And my job, like the two witnesses, whether it's two guys that stand up and then are killed in the last days and they are laid bare in the street, or whether He's talking about the seeming destruction of the church as we know it, then... My job, regardless, is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ even if it costs me my life till the day that I die. And so, I try to figure out what does that do, not just for me, but what does this book mean for people living out the faith on a daily basis? And so, I tend to move towards that instead of the futurist view. That doesn't mean it's I'm right and they're wrong. Well, here's what I tell people about the Civil War. When you start talking about reading books, yeah. look at the author. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and here's the thing. Scripture is written by God. There's no doubt about that from my perspective. But He used the human authors to write to people. The people that read this book originally did not spend... 45 minutes on a chapter. Because they knew what that meant. Now there may have been a couple of times that they went, I don't know what John meant. There are a couple of times that John's probably like, I don't know how to explain it, but I'm going to write it. But the symbolism that we naturally catch. Maybe, I don't know if you all remember, but when we first did this, I talked about me telling you a story and saying something like, um, one afternoon, uh, just using David Carpenter and, and Mark Stevens. One afternoon, David Carpenter and Mark Stevens decided they wanted to blow off work and grab something from the Golden Arches. So they jumped on their hog and they sped off down the street. You mean, you know, and naturally you go, oh yeah, they they wanted to get something to eat, so they left work early and they got on their motorcycle and they went to McDonald's. But somebody 200 years from now would be like, what do you think they meant by a hog? Do they think that they were a literal hog? In the, or was it a boar? And somebody will say, well, my book says that they called motorcycles. Well, that's one interpretation. Right? And so these people wouldn't have been doing what we're doing. And I'm not saying it's bad what we're doing, but we need to get back to the big main idea. And the main idea of this entire book really is God is worthy of worship. He's going to take care of us no matter what happens to us. Amen. We keep proclaiming the gospel till He comes. I could write that outline for almost every chapter. In fact, it's kind of been the outline for about 
I mean, last week's outline was kind of like this. Believe God's Word. It's going to come true. Keep preaching it. Today it's, He's going to take care of us. Keep preaching it. Okay? And that's our task. Well, I, I got another question for you. Okay. <laughs> when you're speaking of using a different name for different things, do you think that the witnesses here equate back to Daniel when he saw the, the ram and the goat? I... Charlie, I mean, there are people that there there are commentators that do that. I, I take the witnesses. I mean, yeah, this isn't going to surprise you because of what I've said, but I take the witnesses as a call to them to, in the way that Moses and Elijah spoke the truth of God, even when it was unpopular, for them to continue to speak the truth of God. I think in Daniel, there's some correlation to Daniel's kind of saying kind of the same thing. You keep doing the word of God, even when it's unpopular and you're in a foreign place and. God seems to be distant. You keep preaching. So I, I think that John, and that's another thing, they would have gotten these Old Testament references much better than we did. They, they just would have because most of them grew up. Not all. There's some Gentiles, but they would have. John definitely would have. John would have, when he's writing this, he's got Daniel in his background and he's seeing the vision of God. And he's seeing the same thing Daniel saw in some ways. So we're getting to the good parts now. <laughs> yes, Alan. Isn't it pretty true, though, that the literal interpretation of the last hundred years is pretty much the way Revelation talks about Yeah. Criswell, they all have the same thing. Here's, here's the thing that, that is interesting about Southern Baptist life. This is probably... My teaching on Revelation is not far away from the mainstream of Southern Baptist life, but it is not lockstep in with... Southern Baptist mainstream teaching. And I'm perfectly okay with that. Otherwise, I wouldn't teach it. Um, but this, this literal interpretation, the, the temple rebuilt and all that, only surfaced really... Now, there was... When it first... In the first couple hundred years, there was some similar teaching. But really, since the late 1800s, early 1900s, is when that understanding surfaced. And W.A. Criswell is as responsible for anybody as it being what Southern Baptists teach. Yeah. And what's interesting is uh, there are guys in the Southern Baptist Convention that I respect greatly for their biblical understanding and their biblical um, exegesis, what you call it, when you just take the Bible and say this is what the Bible says. And when they get to Revelation, they just don't do what they do with the rest of every other book. Now, and I don't mean... Just they, they interpret it symbolically, but they don't use the same resources. They don't they don't do the same critical thinking, and because it's just kind of where we've been, and maybe that's the rebellious streak I have in me. Is I'm, what were the early understandings of that book? Where are there any? Yeah, there there are. First of all, a lot of people didn't touch it. They just didn't touch it. I mean, when you, when you, because we don't have good written records from 100, 200, 300. But you get to Luther and Calvin, some of those guys that people trust. For, I think Luther never seems to mention it. Calvin doesn't mention it. He does mention end times. It's the briefest thing in his multi-volume Institutes of Religion. Um, so they, there's not a lot. Historical premillennialism is kind of what was taught early on by early church fathers, it seems. That is that there is a rapture of the church, but the way David Dockery described it, I would never be able to describe it this way because I wouldn't feel comfortable. There's a, a uh, rapture of the church, almost immediate, he calls it drive-through marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And then you're back down to rule with Christ for a, a thousand years. So the rapture of the church happens as Christ is coming again. You're with Him. I mean, time doesn't matter anymore in a real sense. And then you reign a, mil, a, a thousand years with Him on earth. And then New Jerusalem, New, new Heaven is all established. Okay, But the point by point, seven years of tribulation and pre... There, there wasn't nearly as much pre-tribulation rapture taught until the last hundred years. Premillennial dispensationalism, the pre-tribulation tra- uh, tractor, pre-tribulation rapture is really the last hundred, hundred twenty-five years. So what, what was it prior to it was it was post-tribulation rapture. In other words, the church went through the tribulation. And then was raptured. Drive-through marriage supper of the Lamb. Back. back down to rule with Christ. And if you pin me down today, that's probably where I am. If you pin me down tomorrow, that may not be. Here's where I, here's where I tell you, I think I've used this before. One of my favorite quotes from seminary. I remember about three quotes from seminary from teachers. It's one of my favorites. I firmly believe that 80% of what I believe today is absolute truth. The problem is, I don't know what the 20% wrong is. And I may be... Now, there are certain things we know for true. We know for sure. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He rose from the grave. He's coming again. That's the essentials. The farther we move out, the less dogmatic we can be, or have to be, about the stuff. You know, there's the old joke people say, what kind of millennialist are you? Post, A, pre pre-post, post-pre. And somebody said, I'm the pan millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end, right? And that's kind of, ha-ha. But it's true. You know, it's going to work out. And what we know is God's worthy of worship. He's going to take care of it. He's going to protect us. We just keep proclaiming He's coming. That doesn't mean Revelation is not important. If it's not important, it's not in the book. It's important. But what's important is the message overall that it teaches, not the individual discussions there with him. I think it's exciting to see that the Bible is true from what we experience day by day by listening to the radio and yeah. television. Like, you know, why would Jerusalem, why would Israel be so important in such a yeah. bed of problems if all of this wasn't true. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that a, a, a small that God took a small group of people and made them one of the most important countries on the world in the world. And, and it's still true to this day. Whether or not it happens like premillennial dispensationalists say and, and that return Israel's prominence in the world will be prominence until. Now, we come from a perspective where that's always been. There was a time when the nation of Israel, not too long ago, wasn't. Now the people of God the Jewish people, God still blesses in some ways. I mean, there's just some blessings there. But um, what we have to realize is, too, is that when this spiritual temple was transferred from the temple to Christ to us, we became the people of God and we became Israel, to use that phrase. Okay?